This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Steve Hamilton. Buddy, how's and, it going? Well, it's what, July 23rd and sheep hunters are rolling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, getting, getting the gear together and, uh, I'm taking off in four days. So, uh, yeah, yeah. be good to see you. I mean, other than this kind of face to face crap we're, we're dealing with all the time, staring at each other through a computer monitor, we can actually, uh, tip a few up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so for our listeners, we're recording this July 23rd, but uh, it's probably not going to come out till uh, sometime uh, late in August. So uh, we, we've uh, we've kind of front loaded here. I think we've got four in the hopper and uh, this is number four of four that, uh, so yeah, it's basically a month away this coming out. So some of our stuff might not be exactly talk- topical, but the, the chat with Justin Spring from Boone and Crockett is very topical. Well, it's um, kind of neat that's though. That's so this is going to come out after you're back from your sheep hunt. So how did you do? Can you predict? Uh, buddy, I did amazing. Like, <laughs> can, you, can you believe I killed 180 inch stone sheep? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I'm feeling good. I'm pretty excited. We're, um, uh, going out to chase sheep, uh, doing a fly in this year. I've hiked awesome. in the last couple of years and, uh, was a little bit of combat hunting the last two years, just too mm-hmm. many guys. Um, so hopefully with this fly in, we can get away from, uh, from the masses and, uh, you know, it's, uh, interesting here. Um, you know, we're here, the borders opening August 9th. So, uh, going one way, you know, going one way. Yeah. Yeah. Going North. Uh, but the, the Americans still can go home. Right. So yeah, they're, they're okay coming in and they, they're okay going back. It's just, we can't go South. So, um, until at least August, 21st or whatever it is but um so you know a, a bit of a sigh of relief for the guide outfitting community a really yeah. feel for that community it's been a brutal year last year and and this mm-hmm. is setting up to be a brutal one this year so fingers crossed that you know we they can get their clients in there and uh i really i honestly like the the guide outfitting community what they've gone through this past year i just can't imagine and you know ha- have you heard of any funding federally or provincially for our guide outfitting community i don't think they've got a penny right so not not that I've heard no uh like I said last year we talked about before last September I I got to do uh, uh I won't call it a guided hunt with uh a guide outfitter friend of mine but it was just I went for black bear and used his facilities he was there with a, a young guide he was training and it was just just how slow it was in the area right and he had no moose hunters well he had a couple of moose hunters but they were locals from bc and he relies on a lot of american clients and a lot of european clients so as you said this is going to be a a big sigh of relief for our guide outfitting community and like realistically guide outfitting is uh the original tourism industry for british columbia right and we're seeing tourism down across not not just bc but the world and things are starting to open up so yeah be uh, be curious how it goes and if uh these guide outfitters can make a season it is late it's hell a, a month away at best for for moose it's like some should be bringing in sheep hunters and goat hunters now but we'll see what happens yeah well i, I yeah at least there's going to be something for them so yeah mm-hmm. it's it's a huge relief that uh there's an opportunity there and uh yeah just um yeah, it's, it's been a rough couple of years for, for that community and hopefully that they can get back on their feet and um, start making mm-hmm. some money. And uh, yeah, so, um, okay. So on this episode, we've got uh, Justin Spring. Uh, ju- this is episode 40 for Talk is Sheep. So kind of a landmark for us. Um, 
and uh, Justin is the director of Big Game Records for Boone and Crockett. He's based out of Missoula, Montana. Boone and Crockett does a fantastic job. Um, a lot of people misunderstand what Boone and Crockett does, and I have to admit that I wasn't super knowledgeable on mm. the important work they're doing in the science community. Um, you know h- how important their records are and, and what they're trying to achieve, and um, you know th- the messaging around fair chase and science-based wildlife management. It's all the right stuff, right? And we, I think, we need to do a better job as hunters, or at least I did, and, um, about learning the work that they're doing and, and support this organization because they've done a fantastic job for conservation. No, absolutely. It uh, it makes a lot of sense when he lays it out why it was formed and how it was formed and the founding fathers of it. it when you look at it, you go, oh, I, I do see why it was formed. And uh, he gets into that quite quite in depth in this conversation. And it, it is eye-opening for those that think Boone and Crockett is strictly about the trophy. Yeah, I find it interesting. You know, he throws out names like Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell. Um, you know, you, yeah. you start hearing those names and you're like, holy crap, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Otto okay, Leopold is, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh and you just look at at the people that have belonged to that organization over the years and and steered them in the direction they've they've gone. And it's interesting. Uh episode thirty nine we had um Tony Caligiuri on and Tony's um, their VP of uh, what, what do you say was VP executive VP, executive of, VP of hunting uh, something of hunting conservation. I, I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. something like that. Anyway, Tony is a director high up in the food chain uh, on their board of directors. And uh, so, you know, a really good listen with Tony on this previous one as well. Um, and just great work that Boone and Crockett continues to do. And, you know, their messaging is, is really, really important. Uh, and what they're doing for conservation is, is critical for sure. So, mm-hmm. well, with that, we're going to head right to episode 40. So good luck on your hunt and congratulations on your hunt. Weird, eh? If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Good day, Justin. How's things with you, man? Awesome, man. How are you guys doing? Doing really well. Appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you come to us uh, live from the great state of Montana, or where are you at today? Yep, I'm in uh, Boone and Crockett headquarters looking over the Clark Fork River in Missoula, Montana. Right on. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about the headquarters. Actually, I've never, I've been to Missoula, but I haven't been to the headquarters. Uh, is there, and I actually, I've, I've got some work down in uh, Montana in October. and was kind of thinking about maybe swinging by. Is it kind of a, is there a storefront there? Is there a spot where you can come in and say hello or how does that work? Yeah, no, it's a, it's the old uh, Milwaukee Depot train station right here on the river. Um, we've got a gallery with some uh, old replicas of most of the world records. Um out there kind of a visitor area timeline of uh of the club and there's an office front so yeah swing on in we'd love to see you right on um just out of curiosity how many um people are in the in the office there is there just a handful two or three people or is it is it bigger than that how, uh, what do you guys have 13 of us here in missoula and then we have two more that work on a ranch up on the uh, rocky mountain front but that's that's Boone and crockett staff so right on um Okay, well, great, Justin. Uh, you know, I've known you for a number of years, and uh, I, I can't remember where I first met you. It was Sheep Show, or maybe I think actually it was Chapter and Affiliates in Polson um, through uh, Wild Sheep Foundation Summit there. And I think that's the first time I met you was uh, you were at the summit, and then we had some beers and got to know you. And I think it was DJ was there and uh, a few other Montana WSF uh, individuals. And I think you were on their board of directors at the time. Is that correct? Yep, I was. I uh, still am. Uh, got got a little bit of term left on <laughs> in me, so uh, still still working uh, with them pretty closely. Right on, man. So um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, you know you do a ton of work in in our in our world in the conservation world. Um, so love to hear kind of your story, where you came from, um, and how you got involved with Boone and Crockett, how you got involved with. Uh, you know, Wild Sheep Fund Foundation Montana, just kind of your evolution, your story there. 
Okay. Um, so I grew up on the Southern Oregon coast, hunting and fishing. That was you know my passion. Um, in college, I was looking around the country. I actually played collegiate soccer, so I visited a lot of uh, different schools and made my school selection on the one that I saw the most deer between the airport and the school. They clearly needed some help, um, so I, I figured that'd be the place I want to go to college. That was northern Wisconsin. I uh, got a, a four-year degree there in wildlife, and then um, my wife and I, trying to break into the wildlife field, we're kind of bouncing around. We worked for uh, oh the state of Idaho doing some fish work. Uh, she worked for the state of Oregon. I worked for a timber company. Um, and there was actually a, a job, job posting at the time, you know, we we're doing the seasonal thing, trying to get a foot in the door for uh, Boone and Crockett. And uh, like I said, I was in Oregon at the time. And so I put in for the job. Well, that same year I happened to draw a mountain goat tag. And uh, so there's a required orientation class for Oregon sheep and goat hunts. And uh, Buck Buckner, who was the vice president of Big Game Records for Boone and Crockett at the time, was presenting at the Oregon um, orientation class for goat hunters, and I applied for the job. And so I, I introduced myself to Buck Buckner, and then you know, a week later I was interviewing with BNC, and then they brought me on. That was back in 2008. Um, so I've always had a passion for conservation, and then being here in Missoula and, and um, working with Boone and Crockett, I was fortunate enough to meet some previous board members from Montana Wild Sheep. Um, they encouraged me to apply to become a board member. I, I did that. Um, so I got on with them. Um, my wife is also, she's got, well, she's got three degrees, all bachelor's degrees, but she's also a very um, ardent conservationist as well. She actually works in the uh, aquatic invertebrate field. And she does uh, water quality monitoring for a consulting firm. So that's, I mean, that's that's kind of our life is the conservation world, everything we can do, um, you know, all, all of our work hours and all of our free hours are spent, you know, chasing animals or trying to protect them. Right on, man. Yeah, I love, love that story. So with you specifically, uh, what what's your role with Boone and Crockett? Let's talk a little bit about what you do there with them now. So <clears throat> I'm the uh, director of Big Game Records. I started as the assistant director. Um basically oversee the uh the scoring portion of, of, of bnc you know and everybody um everybody thinks of it as you know competition type deal but it's actually being run as a wildlife data set so um you know again my my degree my background's in wildlife and so i oversee um you know the, the standardization the training of all of our official measures i work with different researchers and whatnot on supplying them data um you know go to conferences different things like that to uh try to see where our data may be useful in research and other areas to help, um, you know, promote overall the records and, and get the idea out there that, that we maintain records to gauge wildlife management successes and failures. You know, it was, it was never designed to be a hunter competition. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the science guy always trying to say why it's cool to use the data and you should enter it, not because it's about you, because it's about the animal and, and where we've been and where we're going in conservation. Right on. So um, your specifically role then, you know, are you doing the training or do you guys have trainers that you oversee type thing? Um, or are you the guy out there with a the tape and teaching guys what they need to know? I know um, you guys have run different courses, you know, all over. I think you guys have them in different remote locations. Um, a bunch of guys in BC here got trained recently. Um, so a lot of friends of mine and members of the society. Um, are, are you doing that training or are other people doing training? How does that work? Yeah. So, the standardization of Boone and Crockett Owen started in 1976, and that was when the first director of records, Jack Renault, came to work for Boone and Crockett. He worked all the way up. I was actually the assistant director under him, and so he trained me in. So all the Boone and Crockett majors were either trained by Jack Renault or myself. Um, Kyle Lair, our assistant director, also helps with those courses. So basically the two records guys in Missoula, we teach all of those all those courses all over North America to ensure a uniform um administration the system okay so just while we're on that note if somebody's interested keen on you know becoming an official scorer um how does that process work what's the selection process where can they go obviously reach out to you guys but what's the process for that justin so if you go onto boone and crockett's website um, boone-crockett.org there's a uh, under the hunt section there's a become an official major there's an online application um, we have significantly more interest than we have um, ability to train people. And so that selection process, 
Our biggest criteria we're looking for is areas that that are underrepresented in terms of numbers and also enthusiasm. So, if, you know, if you get on there and it says, you know, who have you scored for, or whatnot, don't be intimidated. I mean, some of our some of our best measures have never put a tape on anything before the course. So again, it's just if there's not one in your area and you're really enthusiastic about supporting conservation, we'd love to have you send in an application. Okay, so you vet you vet your applicants, and then somebody's successful. Are they traveling to Missoula to meet with you to do the training, or do you guys do remote courses, or how does that work? We, we do courses all around North America. Generally speaking, Missoula is going to be the uh, the most likely one that people would be invited to. Um, if we're traveling to another state or province, generally, you know, a, a fishing game agency or, or something like that will put it on they get first crack at all those seats. So, you know, when we came to BC, the uh, Wildlife Records Club, basically they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put it together for you. They have the ability to select, you know, the 24 seats we could fill. If there's empties, then we'll reach out. So most folks that end up being invited kind of out of the blue um, come to Missoula. That works out to be the cheapest for them and also the, the best experience. Okay. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So we have the Wildlife Records Club of BC here in BC. Um, great not-for-profit. Um, is there an affiliation there? Is that Are they like kind of a, an affiliate to you guys or, you know, just something like you guys have a common goal and, and they kind of look to you for, I know they do Boone and Crockett scoring, obviously, yeah. but is there an affiliation there in any capacity or how does that work? Yeah. So they're, 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 uh, not really an affiliate. I mean, they're authorized to use Boone and Crockett scoring system. You know, as such, I, I work with them pretty closely. If something comes up on a scoring question, they, and it's the same with all the organizations that use our system. Um, they send those in to us here in Missoula so that, you know, even if it's not a BNC trophy, the same, the same rules and regulations are used across the board for scoring, but they've got their own board. They have their own bylaws. Um, you know, it's just the actual administration of the physical scoring system, which is, you know, ours that we created in 1950 is, is where we uh, share a common goal with them. Right on. Okay. So you, you talked a lot about a history and I know Boone and Crockett has a, uh, a long history. Um, love to hear about that. So let's talk about the founders, how it got started, the evolution, and there's some really important stuff on the conservation angle, which I know I didn't have a really good appreciation for that either. I, and I heard you on Meat Eater and you did a fantastic job on there. And I, it really gave me, I kind of got it, but I didn't get it to the level that you explained it on Meat Eater. So let's talk about the history to start with of, of the organization and, and, and why it was founded and kind of how, you know, the evolution of things there. Okay. So the very beginning, it goes back to uh, oh, 1895, actually. Theodore Roosevelt had been out in um, the Dakotas, uh, done some hunting, done some ranching. He wrote a book, Hunting Trip of a Ranch Man, Hunting Trips of a Ranch Man. Um, that book was reviewed by Forest and Stream, which was edited by George Bird Grinnell, who was a very ardent um, conservationist, a leading voice in the early part of, uh, you know, the United States history of conservation. And he wrote a less than favorable review of the book. Well, Theodore Roosevelt goes into this magazine office to, you know, kind of say, hey, what, what's the deal? What didn't you like about my book? And the two of them become um, basically Grinnell sees in Roosevelt that that forward-facing, public-driven um, person. And Grinnell is a very analytical, very thoughtful, but behind-the-scenes type conservationist. And so the two of them at the time were like, man, we, this could become a pretty you know beneficial partnership. Well, those two had a dinner in 1887 at Theodore Roosevelt's house where they came up with the idea of an organization to... Um, protect basically wildlife and the, and the places they lived. Um, it, in the 1800s, it was a lot of forestry stuff. Um, as Roosevelt took, you know, gained in popularity and eventually rose to the presidency, um, the Forest Service, so all the national forests um, that we have today, a good portion of those were actually set aside by Teddy Roosevelt. And so between Roosevelt and Grinnell, that was the very beginning Um you know, everybody knows about the record system of Boone and Crockett. That was actually started in 1907. Um, the Bronx Zoo was a bunch of Boone and Crockett members that had set up the Bronx Zoo. And they had a desire to basically create a collection of the greatest game animals from around the world and North America as well to um, show our generation basically what used to be here. I mean, they thought everything was going extinct. And so in the very beginning, our records 
system was part of the, you know, the national collection. And that was just to basically create a, a repository of heads to show future generations what was once on the landscape because they thought everything was going under. Um, you know, that that continued on. There's a lot of, um, oh, the Lacey Act. John Lacey was a member of Boone and Crockett Club. Um, you know, in the, in, in the U.S., basically, that's a wildlife law that, um, in essence, it made it illegal to take illegally taken game across state lines. You know, back then, they were trying to stop market hunting. And so by John Lacey putting in this Lacey Act, there was no state you could legally hunt game you know, for a market, but as soon as you got over state lines, there was no enforcement. So that Lacey Act was a major thing in stopping market hunting. Um, so, you know, simultaneously, BNC was fighting, you know, all the conservation battles, trying to ensure wildlife. And, you know, the record thing, like I said, started to say what was there. Um, you know, that continued on through the 20s, 30s, 40s. Well, conservation really got a, a, a solid foothold. You know, in the 30s, we had club member, um, Aldo Leupold, who was the first wildlife professor in the United States, we actually started funding his um, research in Arizona when he was working for the Forest Service. That was the first wildlife research that was done in the United States. That was funded by BNC. Um, so in the 30s, we started to get uh, an actual scientific field of wildlife management. Once that happened, the states had um, game laws, which many of them were influential in. Um, we, started, uh, we started seeing a comeback of wildlife, and so... You know, there was there was a, a pause there during World War II. Obviously, that took the country's attention. But when we came back, the club said, okay, you know, um, science, the, the conservation model that we've set up is working. We've got these records. We no longer need to save the very best of every species to show future generations, but we have these, these, these records. What do we do with them? So at that time, they decided they needed to make a, a fair and equitable scoring system that could be used to document the recovery and the um, and also the failures of big game management. And so that 1949, we put in a special committee. Um, they basically sat down, took the best science of the day and said, okay, you know, in, in an ideal, ideal habitat where there's plenty of plenty of resources, not, not over competition, you're going to see mass and symmetry. And that, that's the, the very basis of Boone and Crockett's records is that same system that was developed in 1950. And so, you know, today we still, we're still using those same criteria. Uh, the, the underlying assumption of our system is under the best conditions, these are the traits that will become, you know, strong on a, you know, a sheep or a, a buck or a bull or, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, that's kind of the, the brief history of, of where the records came about. So just a quick question on that. Um, so you guys started, you said, I think 07, you started record keeping and then you, you started the scoring system 4950. Um, so with, with that, has there ever been an evolution or any changes in the scoring system or is it, I know the basis of it hasn't changed, but ha have yeah. you guys tweaked the system at all since 1950? So in, in those early ones, um, that that book that 1895 book and then it, there was a sportsman's exposition they were ranking them but it was it was a far more arbitrary system so it was oh this this ram has a really deep curl plus five points it wasn't an actual measured you know amount um and they did a book in 32 and 39 with kind of this arbitrary um scoring and so that system that they developed in 49 um the only major change we did to that was we have a rule on the inside spread of antlered game that the inside spread cannot exceed the, the longer main beam. The original system not only gave you the only the inside spread, it was also a deduction for any um, spread beyond that longer beam. So it was referred to as the double deduction rule. And that is the only major update that was made to that 1950 system. Um, there's been clarifications as wildlife's come back. We've seen um, antler configurations that had not, you know, had not been witnessed before. And there's been some clarifications on that, that, you know, hey, in the event that, for example, on whitetail, you see a, a whitetail that has two rows of points. Okay, well, those outside rows of points, those are the normal, um, typical, you know, everybody says, oh, blue and crocodile has to be perfect. No, we're, we're looking for the typical form of a whitetail. 
So in that case, we said the outside points must come off the top outside edge. And so that would be a, not a change to the system, but a clarification of, of the original intent and how it's enforced now when we see those. Okay. Um, now with the scoring system, I've heard you talk about this and you touched on it briefly, but um, you know, this is a data set. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of this data set and the scoring, um, you know, as opposed to a trophy type, you know, uh, or, or a competition type scenario? Let's talk about the, the conservation benefits and sort of the justification for that and how, um, how important it is and, and kind of how you use that data set for conservation, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, basically if we were only concerned with the biggest, you know, taken, we wouldn't, we wouldn't just have a threshold for entry. So for, you know, for example, on a thin, thin horn sheet, 160 inches, anything that reaches that, that size, um, we want to record that. And now, you know, we know that we're not getting all of them, but it's following trends. Our system is not, it's not going to say, oh, you know, predation got bad and so it's causing this or, oh, you know, perhaps accessibility to certain areas is causing a decline in numbers. What we can do is look on a North American scale and say historically, you know, for example, BC used to put out this many stone sheep. For some reason, let's take a hypothetical number, 1995, we start to see a decrease. We can take that data and then say, okay, on a, on a North American scale on thin horn sheep in 95, we started seeing a decrease. What changed? And so that's the overall basis. Um, we can't record every animal taken. So the idea is in order to achieve Boone and Crockett minimum scores, they have to basically have all, everything has to be in place for a, a mature male to get to that size. And so basically we're using them as an indicator. Okay. So if, if, if the habitat can produce something of that caliber and we gauge how many of, you know, that caliber of animal are being produced, we can use that as an indicator of overall habitat health and eventually herd health, you know? So that's, that's the overall high level. And that's why, you know, people are like, Oh, I already have a, a 175 whitetail in the book. Well, that 160 you took from an area that, you know, maybe hadn't had an entry before, or maybe used to put out 175s, that 160 is a good indicator now. I mean, you say, okay, well, these deer used to be 175. Now all the entries we're seeing are 165. What caused that 10 inches of decline? So every single animal that exceeds our threshold is a very important data point to us. And of course, we all get excited about world records. You know, the wild horse ram, the biggest ram ever. You know, realistically, from a from a data standpoint, and what I do, I'm almost more excited to see a, a ram show up and come across my desk from a county we've never seen an entry before. Right. So, you know, you have these trends, like you said, and, and you can see these, uh, you know, they're indicator of, of habitat health and eventually herd health or uh, um, ultimately herd health. So what, I guess the big thing is um, for me is, do, do you guys analyze that? And Like, do you have somebody like you're, you're doing the records, that's your yeah. job, but do you have somebody that sits there and looks at this data and says, okay, so we've got this compilation. Here's what I'm seeing this year. And I noticed this about, do you have an analyst and, and what, and if so, what do you do with that information? How does that, wh where do you go from there with that info, I guess? So we've, um, we have a lot of professional membership of the Boone and Crockett Club. They're actual wildlife professors and researchers. Um, you know, commonly what will happen is I'll notice something, you know, trend in the data and say, you know, hey, you know, whoever, I mean, we're, we're kind of seeing this, is there something there? And then they decide whether or not to pursue it. Um, Kevin Monteith who's done a bunch of research, um, you know, on different wildlife species. He wrote kind of the very first, well, he was the lead author. A bunch of our professional membership were involved in it, where they did an analysis of all big game animals from across North America, going back to see if potentially hunter selection had had any effect on the, um, the horn, horn and antler size of big game. And so, you know, we're involved with it, but no, we're, we're not the ones doing the physical research. We just make sure our data sets available to these people. Um, and like I said, Boone and Crockett has, um, I want to say we have three or four universities that we have an endowed professorship at um, with folks doing this wildlife work that, that they're the ones that would kind of drive those analysis with our records. Um, I've been contacted, like, for example, the state of Arkansas did some antler point restrictions. And they had a hypothesis that those antler point restrictions increased the number of trophies, trophy older class deer that they had. 
they compared our entry rate prior to that age class or that uh, point restriction to after. And then they use that in, in their report to say, you know, this, this leads us to believe that this did indeed increase the age, age structure of our gear. Okay. Um, so out of curiosity, with your experience, and you said you, you start noticing these trends or sometimes you'll see stuff. Um, if you look at all the species that Boone and Crockett is responsible for measuring, have you seen a, a change? Have you, and I guess my question is, is are we seeing uh, older, bigger, or I guess bigger um, horn sets or smaller, like or bigger measurements? Um, has there been a transition since 1950? Have you seen that uh, overall? Or is there certain species where they're smaller, certain species are bigger? What What's kind of, what have you seen there? You know, for the most part, it's, it's, it's all pretty good news. Um, you know, whitetail, elk, um, black bear, grizzly bear, all those are, are very, very positive trends. Um, caribou is alarming. You know, we used to get, you know, three, 400 caribou in in a three-year period. You know, now we're down to, we don't, don't even necessarily, well, for example, the Quebec Labrador, they're not even huntable anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we see both. Um, Caribou is very alarming. You know, the woodland caribou is kind of a um, the bright spot in that. Uh, there's been, if you talk to Shane Mahoney, there's been a couple um, documented, basically, caribou crashes and then rebounds in, in Newfoundland. Um, and what we're seeing now is an abundance of extremely large woodland caribou, but not the numbers. So what that suggests to us is that the habitat is is fully recovered. The, the the caribou are coming back. There's a lot of resources on the ground available for these these woodland caribou. So the the ones that are there are getting a, a ton of groceries, for lack of a better term. Um, so you know it's stuff like that 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 you know we're we're concerned about some of it, but other there there is a bright spot in it as well. Well, we t you talk about the data set and how uh, this provides great science. I just curious on a personal level, I, I've got uh, a bunch of wolves that I've taken. And when I went to look, they're not, they're, that's not something you guys are interested in, in, in B and C. And there, there's no entries for them. Like there's not even uh, a way of, uh, like there's no documentation. Just curious to know how wolves would fit in with this data set. As we know, they're exploding all over North America. And uh, will wolves ever make it into B and C? You know, it's it's a topic that, that's come up to the records committee a few times. Um, it really goes back to, you know, when I talked about Theodore Roosevelt in the beginning and trying to uh, really start into conservation, a very important part of our records book is the fair chase aspect. Um, we do record picked up heads. We um, we put in any, any animal will go into that data set, but only hunters that take that animal within fair chase, their names are listed. The issue with wolves is the majority of those skulls that are out there, um, basically fair chase type wolf hunting is, is kind of more of a modern phenomenon. You know, they used to be trapped very heavily. The majority of the wolves that were taken through predator management actions would not be considered fair chase taken. As such, it is not a, if we started a category and we, we were, you know, we say you can't put a trapped animal in. Well, we'd be discounting that many wolves, and so it's something like I said. You know, the lower forty-eight, they're delisted, they're hunted. Um, there's there's a lot of wolves being taken in fair chase now, and so um, it's a it's a topic that we're talking about in the foreseeable future. I do not see it being a category because there's some issues with it, but it is being discussed. You know, and and the other thing we don't know does I mean is a wolf. Is a wolf skull size a reliable indicator of um, habitat? You know, I'm not aware if that if that analysis has been done. Whereas with, for example, antlers and and horns, you know, that's a direct tie to their to their habitat that they're living in. I'm not sure wolves have that. But that's something we need to look into. Awesome, thanks. Sounds good, Justin. So. Can you just touch a little bit more on the concept of the scoring system? So, um, you know, there's other scoring systems out there. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've seen that, um, uh, but Boone and Crockett's kind of, you know, definitely, uh, at the apex of, of the scoring world. Um, you know, can we talk a little bit about this, the symmetry 
and then the um, you know the size and, and yeah. reflection of herd health and that sort of stuff. Just briefly touch a little bit more on that for our listeners. Okay, yeah, and so the thing with all these other scoring systems, um, you know, we don't have a problem with any of them. You know, they're they're all great. They all have, um, you know, they all have attributes that are interesting. And so there's not a rule that says, oh, if I put my trophy in this book and this book, I can't put it in Boone and Crockett. That's not correct. You know, our mission is to look at the animal. The idea behind mass and symmetry, anywhere you look in nature, bilateral symmetry is generally a sign of fitness. Uh, you know, all throughout nature, bilateral symmetry is there. And then the mass um, also goes along with that. The idea of using antlers, which is basically a secondary um, sexual characteristic, the the animal is going to take care of survival first, and then they start growing these ornate antlers afterwards. So in order for those antlers to develop to a very high-end size, there has to be an abundance of resources. So what we did in the beginning, and it's been proven out um, over time, you know, still that that massiveness and symmetry is is indicators of herd health. Um, that's that's what we're concerned with. That's why those attributes are very strong in our system, and why those trophies rank higher. Um, you know, is it cool to have something with a bunch of abnormal points? Oh yeah, that's awesome. I mean, from a hunter's perspective, yeah, that's the trophy of a lifetime. But you know, scientifically, it's basically a statistical outlier. So those statistical outliers for B and C don't don't gain, you know, a ranking. Whereas for a hunter, that could be the coolest thing ever. So, you know, we always say you should never the B and C score should never make or break a hunt. That was never the intention. It was never supposed to be a competition, you know, amongst hunters. It's just an additional piece of data after the hunt's done. You have the memories, you have the mount, and if it happens to make our minimums, you can also contribute back to conservation by putting that in the book. Right on. So, you know, I guess for listeners, that's something to consider is if you've shot a bigger animal, a lot of guys like, oh, I don't need the recognition and, you know, kind of thinking that, oh, it's about uh, a competition or whatever, but it actually has a role in conservation as well. It, it's going to contribute to a data set that's going to be used for perpetuity, really, for wildlife management. So, you know, guys should consider, guys and girls should consider that when uh, when considering whether or not to put their name in the book. You know, the other thing we have discussed, too, is, is we, we hear that a lot. It's like, well, I don't need my name in the book. Well, you know, I mean, we completely understand that. And, I mean, perhaps you could consider submitting it anonymously. That's still a valid data point. I mean, I'm going to need to see the tag and everything to ensure the fair chase piece. But if you don't want your name in there, you know, we don't have to include that. It is about the animal. At the end of the day, that's what I care about. Uh, right on. Okay, so I just want to step back, and I kind of I was hoping to touch on this, and I forgot about it. But uh, you talked about... Um, everything's doing generally well. One of the things that you've seen is caribou that is of concern. Is there anything that's doing really well that you look in the data set and go, wow, look at this, look at the, you know, there's a huge transformation. You know, our average whitetail was 178 inches and now it's 190 as an example. Um, is there something that stands out um, with you over the last 70 years that has really um, flourished, I guess? I mean, whitetail is, is, is pretty much your, your prime example. And, and that can be attributed to their ability, their adapt, adapt, uh, adaptability to deal with, you know, people basically they are across the landscape. Um, the entries for those basically skyrocketed all the way up until about the 27th or 28th awards program. Our, our, our records programs broke down into three-year periods. We're currently in the 31st. So, you know, 10, 12 years ago, the whitetails have kind of plateaued. We saw um, we saw a big decrease in the upper Midwest. There was a big there was a, a year that EHD was really bad, um, and so we saw you know a big drop in entries in that time period. But overall, the whitetails are amazing. Um, you know you you could contribute it to to QDMA. There's been a big shift um, historically. The areas that put out the big whitetails would have been you know northern Minnesota, St. Louis County. Well, it's a huge county, but there's a lot of area there that deer were allowed to get age. And so historically speaking, those places where the deer could avoid detection, basically to get up to that six, seven, eight years old was where we saw the big bucks. And I, I'd say that's why Canada is statistically, you know, consistently and statistically just dominating on a lot of these whitetail categories is the deer are allowed to get ages. Well, in the lower 48, we started this idea of let them get some age on them. And, and, and that's when we see the, 
you know, the Iowas, the Kentuckys, that, that those more open areas putting out these absolute tremendous deer. Um, but yeah, across the board, I mean, white, white tails are absolutely amazing. I, I've got a, um, you know, you asked about analyzing right now, in theory, the abnormalities seen on a rack are caused by some form of stressor. Um, that would lead you to believe that over time, perhaps the abnormal inches should be decreasing over time. So right now we're analyzing our data, you know, at a high level to say, okay, is that happening? Are we seeing a decrease in abnormal points in our whitetail entries? If so, that would in, that would indicate to us a, a healthier healthier herd and better management. And so that that one's amazing. Bears are another one that that across the landscape, um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing the largest grizzly bears. We're seeing tremendous brown bears. Um, black bears are coming back into places that they were extirpated from. Um, states that hadn't had bear seasons or, or, or starting in to have bear seasons is there's giant bears being taken They're They're doing absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, it's like I said, each one, we could do a podcast on pretty much each species and, and what we've seen and what's happened. And it, it's all very interesting stuff. Yeah, for sure. So now, you know, you look at a place like BC where we've recently banned grizzly bear. How does that affect your data set? Obviously, you're not going to get your BC info. Uh, fair enough, but you know, when you get these areas where you've you've you're no longer getting data sets, is that pretty impactful? Or you know, uh, does that is that a concern for you guys? What are your thoughts on something like that? You know, what what we would do is look at the surrounding the surrounding areas. Okay. No, BC is not allowing hunting. Are we going to start seeing more of them coming down into, say, for example, Washington? Um, we'll still we still accept picked up heads. So if somebody finds a hits a grizzly bear on the side of the road or you know something like that, um, we'd still put those skulls in, and we'll still keep a very close eye on you know what the skull size is. What are the bears doing from BC? I mean, are they going to? The one thing that I noticed, um, I'm originally from Oregon, like I mentioned. You know, they outlawed the use of uh, certain tactics in hunting bears. Well, we saw a giant increase in the bear population, but they became overpopulated, and it appears that the skull size has actually correspondingly dropped. So that's something we may see in BC is that, you know, they open up hunting again way down the road in the future or something. Perhaps the bears are going to be smaller because there's not enough resources there for them. And so from a, from a perspective of are we not getting the entries, is that problematic, you know, we don't make money on the records program. This is a a, a, a conservation effort that, that we put forth. And so it's, you know, if, if we're not getting entries, it's not like we're going to quit doing records or anything. Um, but we, you know, we really don't like seeing what happened up there where they admitted it was not science driven. It was, it was popular opinion driven. And so from the, for the BC grizzly bear factor, that that's our biggest concern as an organization is the fact that, people like willingly ignored science just for popular opinion. We've always been the science group. You know, I talked about the forest reserves and, you know, Pinchot was an early member of ours. He was the first forester in the U S the first wildlife biologist. BNC has always been a science driven organization and from our founding. And we, whenever we see science ignored, we get very alarmed for the future of wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I want to jump into that in a minute here as well, but, uh, um, you know, while we're on these species and, um, uh, you know, with BC, uh, you know, we have, you know, you have your scoring system for stone sheep. Um, and of course there was a, a study that was done a few years ago, um, by, uh, a professor out of U of A, I think it was, uh, Dr. Sim regarding stone sheep and, and they kind of reclassified stone sheep kind of saying that, uh, you know, the science indicates that it's kind of, uh, more BC driven. So, you know, there's this question about, you know, if they kill an animal, a stone sheep, um, have you guys looked at any of that? And is that a concern for you? I know you haven't changed your records from older sheep, but have you guys had to relook at that or reclassify anything like that? That's one example I'm aware of, but there's probably other right. ones, maybe with caribou or other species too, right? Um, you know, in our records, there is certain species that, um, for example, a, a prime example is a Shiris moose versus a Canadian moose for BNC. Literally, our border is the U.S.-Canada border. Clearly, a moose is going to cross back and forth. Um, you know, we we had to use some type of uh, uh, easily identifiable boundary for hunters. And we know that, you know, moose further south in the Rockies don't necessarily get as big as, as a Canadian moose. Um 
within our data, though, even though they came out and said that those stone sheep, um, the the research showed that that refugia that was created during glaciation was a particular region of, of BC, correct? And that, you know, the, the stone sheep per se is a very genetically unique thing. From a record standpoint, we've always said any sheep that has black hairs other than its tail is going to be a stone. Now, if a researcher wants to look and say, okay, only this area is these true stone sheep, we have the location data. So from a record standpoint, from a history standpoint, from getting somebody to enter their stone sheep versus their doll sheep, um, it really at the end of the day is not as important to us because if we do want to separate it out, we could say, okay, genetically, these are stone sheep. Let's compare those and from an area that they say are all genetically stone sheep to the rams from around there that are they're showing black hairs, but they're not they're genetic. So we could compare them back and forth. So the decision by the committee was that we are not going to change our definition. Um, you know, it's to have a DNA analysis done. We do it on blacktail versus mule deer. It's $300 to set up the test and then $70, something like that per, per sample we submit. So as it is now, it's $100 to get those DNA samples done. I don't foresee us ever requiring a DNA sample on a stone sheet for classification, which is in essence what we would have to do if we were going to take it to the genetic level. Well, and I guess too, Justin, like if you're looking at it from a purely science perspective and you've got a data set that, you know, okay, we're looking at a sheep that it, if it's got black hair, it's a stone sheep. You've got that consistent data from, you know, back to the fifties um, mm -hmm. and it's going to stay consistent. And if you change the way you're scoring it or the way you're analyzing it, um, now you've got a brand new set of data, which is not consistent. You can't really compare it to the old stuff because you're using a different you know, different markers in that. Right. So Correct. yeah, I, I can un understand why you guys would stick with that. And it makes a lot of sense. And it's a very good argument on the science end of things. Right. So, yep. um, and, uh, certainly those guys that, um, uh, maybe shot what was a fan or a doll sheep. They don't, they don't want to be told that it's not a stone <laughs> sheep. So, um, I totally respect that for sure. Um, okay. One of the things I'd like to dive into is you've used this term fair chase. Um, and I kind of have an idea what I think that means, um, but I'm not sure I completely understand it. So tell, and, and I know you guys did a great program around fair chase. Um, you know, it was kind of a, a marketing or PR piece. Uh, I remember f about five years ago, which I thought was really effective, but what does fair chase mean? And, and how does that affect, uh, I guess the hunting community? So fair chase again, goes back to our founding. The first time fair chase appears in North American literature is in the founding documents of Boone and Crockett from February of 1888. So the first time we see that term in North America was BNC associated. So from the very beginning, this idea of fair chase has been paramount to, to our mission. Um, you know, you get a lot of questions like, well, how can it be fair? You're using a rifle. You know, that, that's a very valid point. Basically, if you boil it all the way down, fair chase is just saying that when you go to the field, the animal has an equal or equitable or a fair opportunity to elude the hunter. You know, the odds are not stacked in your favor. Um, you know, you're, the animal can use its senses to detect you and avoid, you know, harvest. Um, but that, I mean, that's the, that's the very, you know, basic idea of fair chase. Um, we, we get into a lot of discussions on, um, you know, what's fair chase and what's not. And, and with technology emerging today, you know, it's, it's a daily, a daily analysis. And it, it, at the very beginning, though, like you have to say, you know, is the technology, is the is the tactic preventing the animal from detecting you? And is it making harvest a certain thing or a more certain thing? You know, le leading on technology, not your skills as a hunter. Um, a lot of people on the back of our, um, well, on the entry affidavit that you signed for an entry, there's a list of things that Boone and Crockett has stated, you know, unequivocally, these cannot be fair chase. People think that that's the line of fair chase. No, no, like fair chase is a personal choice. You know, what, what do you feel good about? What, what, what level of, of engagement with the animal do you want to have? What we did is said, okay, if you're going to use, for example, a radio that you have somebody on a sitting on another mountain talking you into the sheep to where you're not seeing it and they're telling you where to go, that, that in, no, in no case can that be considered fair chase. You know, another one, hunting within an enclosure. The animal, you know, well, it may be able to um, not be detected by you. It can't get away, you know. And so those those requirements that people have kind of, you know, 
adapt is, oh, these are the rules of fair chase. No, man, that's that's like the bare minimum that you couldn't do those things if you wanted to be considered a fair chase hunter. Um, you know, we don't have a really good example is long range shooting. A hundred percent, you can ethically and consistently with the right equipment and training deliver a bullet at a thousand yards, say, or, or further. Um, at the end of the day, you have to make a personal choice. Your skills can be there. The, the firearm can be there. You know, can that animal detect you? Do you feel that that is, in your opinion, giving you an unfair advantage over that animal by being able to shoot that far? And so that's, it's a real hard thing. You try to tell somebody what you're doing is fair chase is not fair chase. You know, it's a, it's a personal decision that you have to make on what, where you're relying on technology and where you're relying on your hunter or your, your skills as a hunter. And, and we spend a lot of time talking about this, you know, and, um, you know, another thing I like to say is fair chase was started. Those guys at first said, you can't do these things because we were eliminating wildlife. Okay, so fair chase has started to save wildlife populations. We can get into this later as well, but the idea of trophy hunting 100% was created by Boone and Crockett to save wildlife. It's got a horrible name now, but that's kind of a, a side topic. But this, this fair chase aspect, we started that to save wildlife so things weren't being overly killed. You know, the wildlife could rebound. We get into the 30s, we get scientific management of wildlife. We now have provincial governments, state agencies setting harvest levels. Um, it's not as important from that aspect that hunters self-regulate through fair chase, but now it's the perception of hunters. You know, in the U.S., I know 70-something percent of people don't hunt, but they accept it. Fair chase continues today to save hunting. You know, so it started to save wildlife. It continues today to save hunting because, for example, in the U.S., if those 70-something percent don't support what we're doing, they're not going to vote. They're not going to allow hunting, and then you're going to lose your funding for wildlife management. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very in-depth and long topic. I mean, is there something in particular you'd like to ask about on the fair chase front? Uh, I guess the big thing is, you know, we see this in BC and we struggled with this. Um, we, you know, Wild Sheep BC is a member of the provincial hunting and trapping advisory team. And we sort of weigh in on this fair chase subcommittee and it's, it's been pretty controversial, right? Um, mm -hmm. We've had a lot of issues. Yeah. So you guys have a committee that looks because the thing is we're seeing it, you know, every meeting we have quarterly meetings and there's a new technology out and it's like, well, what's, what are we going to do on this? And, you know, we've seen the evolution drones and, and, you know, um, the electronics out there now and heat seeking uh, equipment it just it goes on and, and and we know it's with technology it's probably going to evolve even more rapidly so do you guys meet regularly and, and how do you how do you manage that internally so there the definition of fair chase and and the, the promotion of that idea is handled by our ethics committee um you know there's a records committee there's an ethics committee i actually sit on both you know i'm the staff representative for both rec records and ethics but yeah, the ethics committee is always looking at, you know, overall fair chase. And again, like I said, the record side of things, we're kind of, we're kind of black and white. You know, we don't have to look at the nuances as much. We just say, you know, overall, is this tactic crossing a line? And so the records committee looks at that, but the, the ethics committee is the one that, that really, you know, they're the ones that meet and discuss these, these dilemmas of, you know, on one hand, yes, this particular weapon is more precise and delivers a more ethical arrow or bolt or bullet or whatever it may be, you know, at that level from a record standpoint, okay, well, if it's legal in the state, fine. Ethically, the ethics committee would say, okay, you know, is this technology gone too far? And what we're trying to do, um, in essence, you have to draw a line in the sand and that line has to be defendable. And there's always going to be stuff that's just slightly unfair chase and just barely fair chase. The one that we just recently spent a bunch of time, we actually did this in conjunction with the Pope and Young Club, is we were looking at the cellular trail cameras. Um, can the cellular trail camera be used just like a normal trail camera and not violate fair chase 100%, but can you also use that same technology? And, I mean, in essence, I could be sitting here at my desk during deer season, and I know that if a deer comes down this trail an hour later, he's going to come out here for whitetails example. I see them walk by, I leave the office and go shoot it. Well, no, that, that's crossing a line. That's leaning too much on technology. 
And so what we said in that case was any type of technology that delivers real-time location data of the game. Not only does that cover those cellular trail cameras, but that's saying like, sure, you can use caller data that you get from the fish and game agency for scouting, but you can't be out there with your antenna. You know, okay, well, the elk caller's beeping over here. I go to it. That's delivering via technology, real-time location data. And, you know, within that, there's, there's questions that come up. I mean, is a rangefinder delivering real-time location data? Currently, we allow rangefinders. You could make that argument. But, yeah, there is, there is a committee that discusses this stuff in depth. And we're also, you know, we, we get requests from state game agencies that are, you know, hey, we're looking at this particular um, technology. What, what's BNC's position on it? And so we'll say, okay, here's here's where we are, here's where we land on it. So yeah, it's a it's a continuous discussion that we're all involved with, and it sounds like you're very familiar with as well. So, okay, sounds good. Um, one of the areas you just mentioned was the trophy hunting, and and you mentioned it earlier about um, you know um, I guess seventy uh, percent of the U.S. supporting hunting, um, and kind of so where I want to go with this is uh, you know there maybe is some perception that this is a competition and, and uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, public perception about trophy hunting and that sort of stuff, you know, what's your guys, I guess, what's your take Justin on, you know, where we need to go from here. You know, we're dealing with this in BC. Uh, we've got a number of campaigns. Uh, we've got a one campfire campaign. We've got uh, who cares BC campaign um, sort of dealing with this social license issue in British Columbia. And we know it's not, just a BC issue. So kind of what's your take? What, how do we, how do we do better? I know you, this, this message, when I hear Boone and Crockett's message and I hear it's about science, it's about wildlife management, it's about herd health. Um, but I think that gets lost a little bit in translation when we go to the general public. Um, you know, how, how do we, how do we deal with that moving forward in your opinion? You know, the, the biggest thing is um, we have to educate public on the fact that what they consider trophy hunting um this this you know complete lack of care for the animal just killing it trying to get the biggest thing in your in your uh you know trophy room that disgusts us as much as it disgusts them you know we you want to harvest the older mature animal you know like i said that the start of that was the populations could not maintain um harvest of you know, the young and the females. And so BNC said, okay, you, you're looking for the oldest, most mature male specimen that's already passed on its genetics. Hunting can continue if you concentrate your harvest on these particular species because there's no net loss and will actually allow them to recover. You know, as hunters, what we need to do, and, you know, there's a big movement out there, oh, don't, don't put a field photo up there. You know, people could get the wrong, wrong idea from it. You know, at the end of the day, we, we need to remember that if we reduce an animal beyond its complete, you know, overall, like, respect we have for it. So if, if I'm only shooting an animal for its horns, I'm not respecting the animal. The same could be said if I'm only shooting the animal for its meat. If you reduce that to any single factor, that's not good, which is very interesting to me now that people are saying, oh, I'm only shooting it for the meat. Well, we talk about market hunting, and that's a very big topic. At the same time, they were called pot hunters, people that would shoot anything and throw it in their pot to eat. That had just as much of an effect as a market hunting did back in the day. And so as hunters, we need to explain, like, yes, we have that magnificent moose on the wall. Those memories that it brings back are awesome. But I also invited all my friends over. We had freaking amazing bacon-wrapped moose tenderloins. We had, we took the bones and we turned it into bone broth. And I made this amazing risotto. You know, I... I tanned the hide that my kid has his friends come over and we're like, Hey, check out this moose hide. See how these, you know, see how the hide does this. We use those to tie flies. You know, we, we have to make sure they understand that like we're not reducing them to a single factor. And that is the overall public opinion, in my opinion, of why people are so disgusted by trophy hunting. If you're just looking for an ornament. Yeah. I'm offended by that too. And so that's, that's the key component as hunters is like, you know, be proud of the be proud of the mount. Hang it proudly in your house, but you'll enjoy the meat. Tell them it's illegal to take a game animal and not utilize it. Most of these people have no clue that we legally cannot take an animal and just leave it in the field and just take the head. That's a 
or crime, wanton waste. And so it's, it's an education piece, but like I said, we have to be careful, in my opinion, that we don't we don't hide behind, you know, some of the things we do, if, if the reasons that we're doing them and the reasons we, we are proud of that are, are solid, we shouldn't, we shouldn't tuck tail and run from that. We should educate them and say, this is why it's so important to me to have this particular animal hanging over my fireplace when somebody walks into my house, you know, and, and that's where I think we really need to improve as a, as a, a community of hunters. Uh, great message for sure, Justin. Couldn't agree more. Um, so I'm curious now, when we look at Boone and Crockett, we've seen this organization that dates back to 1895. We've seen the record sharing come about in 07. We've seen, uh, you know, scoring system come into play in the 50s. So w- where do we go from here? What's what's on the agenda for Boone and Crockett? Obviously, you're going to continue to do the great uh, work you continue to do. You've got a long history of, of conservation and wildlife management and science-based. Um, but where do you go from here? Where, where do, what does Boone and Crockett look in the next look like in the next 50 years? So we're one thing we're very, very heavily involved in um, conservation policy. Um, in 2000, we actually uh, created the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, AWCP. Um, this was, you know, 70s and 80s, we had a bunch of, of, of specialty groups kind of um, coming forward. You know, you have the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, Wild Sheep Foundation. Um, what we did there was said, you know, well, these guys care about sheep and these guys care about elk and these guys care about deer. At the end of the day, there's a lot of common ground that we have. And so that's where BNC stepped in and said, hey, man, let's everybody just come to the table and sit down, you know. We're all trying to do the same thing. We shouldn't be jockeying for position. Let's have a unified voice that we can take to DC and say, hey, here's how here's how the conservation community who have basically funded the entire recovery of wildlife, here's how we see moving forward. Um, and so that's what BNC is doing a lot of now is trying to kind of rally the troops, you know, hey, let's let's get a unified voice. Let's make sure this legislation is is going the right way. And honestly. We'd love to have a bigger effect in Canada, but we, we just don't right now. Um, you know, we've had some Canadian membership that's been up there, but it's just the way that, that we're set up in the U.S. is we're a little more effective down here than we are in Canada, but we're lo- we'd love to have, you know, more Canadians um, as associates, more Canadians involved to help us say, hey, man, we have this going on. You know, what could you guys do to come help us up here? And so that's, you know, that's right now, that's the fight that wildlife um the continuation of wildlife, that's where that sits. Um, people aren't killing too many deer, so we don't, you know, we're, we're not concerned with reducing harvest. People aren't, you know, it's it's a legislative issue right now, ensuring the funding for wildlife. A major thing that we did, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, we spent many, many years trying to get that funded. Um, that ensures, you know, funding for conservation projects. That's what BNC is doing today. And so a lot of people are like, well, we, you know, you guys had a great history. Well, at the time, it was swinging public opinion, so we played very heavily in the public opinion field. Right now, the thing that the wildlife needs is a more behind-the-scenes, you know, efforts that we're still very involved in. It's just not as publicly visible as it used to be. So, you know, basically, what's BNC going to do in the next 100 years? It depends on where wildlife needs help and wild places needs help, you know, and we're going to step in and do whatever we can where we're needed to do the best we can. Right on. Very inspirational. I love it. Um, okay. So let's, let's just take a, a brief hiatus from Boone and Crockett. Let's talk Justin Spring. What's, uh, what's the fall plan? What, what's, uh, what do you got on the, the, your, the docket for a hunt this fall? Um, we uh, drew a couple tags. My dad and I cashed in our Oregon antelope points. I think he was sitting at 20 and I had 15 or 16. So we've both drawn uh, antelope tags that we're going to go do in August. He actually won a raffle on the uh, Acoma um, reservation for a uh, week-long elk hunt in October, rifle hunt. Um, so, yeah, this this fall is going to actually be hanging out with my dad quite a bit, which is going to be fun. Um, my wife and I are going to go up, and uh, I drew one of the emperor goose permits from Alaska. So we're going out on the Aleutian Peninsula. My wife always wanted to go bird watching, so we're going bird watching on the peninsula with shotguns. Um, so... <laughs> 
you know, we, we've got some stuff in, in the hopper. The other thing is we're super fortunate where we are in Montana to have over-the-counter deer, over-the-counter elk, um, a lot of opportunity here. And so, you know, we'll, we'll have a super busy fall. We're going to see some new country and it should, should be a lot of fun. I think you spend a lot of time on the water as well, right? You do a lot of fishing and stuff. I'm always seeing pictures of you with fish and stuff. So, yeah, no, again, I mean, like I said, a lot of that, you know, people are like, oh, you travel all the time, man. This is all you know, within a day of, of where we live in Western Montana. Um, you know, there's a, there's a conservation lake trout tournament that happens in a lake. They're trying to remove the lake trout because it suppressed the uh, kokanee and cutthroat that were in there. And so, they basically figured out, okay, well, we could spend a quarter million dollars a year netting these lake trout, or we can give fishermen this quarter million dollars a year in prize money, and we actually get more lake trout out of the lake. So in that case, it's a great excuse. I mean, no, we're not making money, but we're spending a little less than we normally do to go fishing. So we'll be chasing lake trout up there doing that this fall for sure. Um, you know, it, from what I've seen, it looks like Oregon and, and the West Coast might have a decent salmon run this year. Um you know, my wife and I were heavily, when we got out of college, we actually thought we'd go into fisheries. So we watched that quite a bit. So we might go back and do some of that. Um, but again, you know, this is all, all conservation stuff, man. We just love it. And that's, that's what we spend all our time doing. That's awesome. Um, you know, Justin, I can't thank you enough for all the work that, uh, you do personally for the conservation community. And, and, you know, there's the day job where you're collecting the salary for it, but then, there's the stuff you're doing on evenings and weekends for WSF Montana and, and wild sheep conservation as well. And, and, and beyond that too, I know that's just not what you're restricted to. So I want to thank you and I want to thank uh, Boone and Crockett for your leadership and direction and, and for all you do in, in the conservation world. No, I appreciate it. And you know, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate it, Justin, and uh, have a great week.